Yeah, thank you, John. Uh, we are going to open our Bibles now. We are continuing to work our way through the book of Mark. Uh, we're up to chapter 12. We're going to be reading from verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, just in case you're wondering, next week at Pathway, I'm going to be preaching and we're going to take the next chapter of Mark. So just as a little taster, if you've seen what that chapter's about, uh, it's pretty interesting, pretty difficult, um, but I think very appropriate for the end of the year. So we'll do Mark 13 next week, but today we're going to do most of Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to invite Ben up, and he's going to read us, uh, read for us. Reading from Mark chapter 12, from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses and the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, 
The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and make for a show, and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Uh, It's a long chapter, but it is all tied together very carefully uh, through a number of different themes that we're going to work our way through. So keep it open, uh, keep it in front of you, and we'll see how this all works together. Now, Melinda thinks uh, thinks this is a bit weird, um, but I'm convinced that other people like doing it too. Uh, What it is, is uh, when we go to the beach, uh, if there happens to be a small stream or a small creek flowing down uh, over the beach, say, say down at Buttons Beach, um, I, I can't seem to help myself but go and try to dam it. I, I'm sure it's not just me, I'm sure other people love it as well. You know, she thinks it's odd, she indulges it, but, but I love it. Like, you know, I, could, I could do that for hours, try and stop this creek from making it to the sea. You know, it, like, it, the kids love it too, so like, we really get into it. You have to, you have to plan out your wall, uh, you have, Donald Trump would love it, you have to, you know, you have to design it very carefully. Put it in the right places, you know, get the big rocks in, pack it out with the small rocks, pack it up with sand. It's great, you know, make a little swimming pool. But I'm intrigued by the way that no matter how well you build that dam, the water always finds its way through. Like, I've never ever stopped Buttons Creek from, from flowing completely. Like, the water always gets away, doesn't it? The water always wins. But do you notice how it does that? You know, Buttons Creek doesn't stop at the bridge and say, well, there's this annoying bloke down there trying to stop me. I'm going to go around that way and get past him. Now, it doesn't happen like that. You know, I mean, you know, that would be crazy. It finds the weak spots in your dam. It finds the low spots in your dam. It finds the little gaps that, that you've made. It finds the path of least resistance and it smashes it wide open and happily flows on through. Humans... We, we're a bit like water in that, aren't we? We love the path of least resistance. We love finding our way through the gap, picking the loophole, going the easiest way. There's studies, uh, I read a couple of studies this week that, that prove this. We are naturally inclined to find the easiest way through something. We do it consciously, we do it unconsciously, sometimes very deliberately, sometimes we just drift into it. But we love the path of least resistance. That's, that's where we find ourselves. That's where we end up. And in lots of things, that's okay. But there's a danger that we could end up doing that with God. There's a danger that we could end up looking at being a Christian a bit like that. Maybe not consciously, maybe unconsciously, maybe not deliberately, maybe just drifting. 
But there is that pull for us to come towards, to, to find ourselves in the path of least resistance, the path, the easier way. I mean, we can even start to justify it, can't we? You know, we, we say, we, we, we go on about all the time, you know, God's done everything, so maybe that path actually makes a lot of sense. Maybe that, that, maybe that works. I mean, after all, He's God, we're not. Let's leave it all up to Him. Well, what we see in our passage today is Jesus explaining, first of all, why that doesn't make sense, but secondly, why it doesn't work. And the way that Jesus shows us, it has a lot more resistance, it is a lot harder, but it's also a good thing. It's also a good thing, and we're going to see that today. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through the confrontation section of Mark. We've seen uh, again and again people coming to Jesus and challenging him and, and, and giving him questions and opposing him. And this is kind of the high point of that. This is, this is the peak of the opposition. You know, there's, there's no pretense now. Let's trap Jesus. <laughs> you know, let's get him stuck. Let's trip him up. We see that in verse 13 through 15. Uh, later they sent, they being the, the, the ruling Jews of the time, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Uh, don't miss this. This is an uneasy alliance going on here. So the, the Herodians, the Pharisees, they were two parties in kind of the Jew Jewish religious parliament, but they're on the opposite side of the, <laughs> of the floor. They, they don't see eye to eye. This is, this is you know, uh, Jackie Lambie and Nick McKim coming together to trip up Scott Morrison. <laughs> like, this is a bit weird. But it's a great question, isn't it? I mean, they couch it in flattery. Jesus, you're such a great guy. Like, how awesome are you? you no, no one ever, you know, you don't bow to anyone. But look at their question. Who are you going to back, Jesus? That, that's essentially what it boils down to. Who are you going to back in our world? <laughs> it's a great trap, isn't it? If Jesus says Caesar, uh, yeah, if Jesus says Caesar, the crowd's going to hate him because they think he's come to oppose Caesar. The, the, the crowd's going to abandon him if Jesus says pay your taxes. Now, if Jesus says don't pay your taxes... Well, that gives the religious leaders great opportunity. They can just say, uh, Jesus is a rebel, he's an insurrectionist, go and arrest him, Roman rulers. So either way, Jesus, you know, Jesus is stuck between a rock and a hard place here. One, losing his popularity, losing his crowds. Two, getting thrown into jail. There's, there's really no way out of this, or so it seems. Their question is great. But Jesus' answer is greater Look at what he says. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. See, they asked, God or man? And Jesus says, yes. <laughs> Jesus, see, what Jesus does here is, Jesus' answer is bigger than their question, isn't it? 
You know, Jesus' answer, in fact, is God is bigger than your question. You've tried to pit God against man. Jesus says it doesn't work like that. It is God over man. You're forgetting how things work. Now, do you notice the implication of his answer? He says, you know, give that coin back to Caesar because Caesar's image is on that. But do you see what that implies? That implies, therefore, that if all coins are Caesar's because his image is on them, therefore all men are God's because his image is on all us. We belong to him. God is bigger. That's what Jesus says. And his answer to the next question actually takes us in a very similar direction. Let's look at the next uh, question that's brought to him. It starts there at verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? I mean, everything about this is ludicrous, isn't it? <laughs> this is kind of weird. I mean, the situation is weird. It, we, we, we wouldn't do anything like that. But that's how uh, marriage and, and laws around marriage worked in that day. And it was kind of a good thing. It was to preserve property and inheritance and all those things. So it wasn't as weird as it sounds. But the question itself is, is totally ludicrous. I mean, first of all, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't think it's going to happen at all. They think you just die and that's it. So to ask a question about something they don't believe in, it's clearly not a real question, is it? It's a trap. But even their question is ridiculous. I mean, what an implausible situation. You know, seven brothers who all managed to die before fathering children, who all managed to marry this poor woman who gets widowed seven times. I mean, it's totally bonkers. All they're trying to do is trip Jesus up. They're trying to, to lead him down the path of either denying the resurrection and therefore losing the crowd again, or to making some sort of mistake or getting trapped in some sort of implausible uh, explanation and losing his credibility. So again, rock and a hard place. How's Jesus going to work his way out of this one? Well, we see it, verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Do you see again what Jesus is saying here? He's saying your categories of thinking are too small. They're too narrow. You're underestimating God. God is bigger, far bigger than these crazy problems you can invent for yourself he says you don't understand what God is like you don't understand what he has got prepared for his people and in fact your very opposition to the resurrection you don't even understand the Bible that you're supposed to be experts in there is a resurrection and God is God of it See, it's brilliant you know, rather than getting tied up in technical arguments, rather than heading off into obscurity, 
rather than being lowered to their petty level, Jesus rises above it. He says, remember, God is far bigger than your minds. God is better than the problems you can think up. Don't forget it. But now there's one more religious leader nearby, and he's impressed by what he's heard. Uh, he comes to Jesus. He comes without malice. Without his, this is not a trap anymore. He's just asking his own question. Now, we might think it's weird. You know, why ask Jesus which is the most important law? Like, that's a kind of... Obs- if you're going to ask Jesus anything, what, would you ask him that? But it matters because what he's asking is, Jesus, how do you understand the Old Testament? At the heart of that, how do you understand God? What does Jesus say? What's there in verse 29? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Genuine inquiry meets genuine answer, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, the teacher, the, the scribe, he, uh, he appreciates it. He, he, he's very thankful for this answer that, God, uh, that Jesus gives. Because once again, Jesus, Jesus is very consistent here. Jesus is saying to him, once again, God is bigger. God is better. There's a, there's a detail right at the start there, which we, we blow over. We kind of miss it and go on to the next bit. But what Jesus says is, God is one. And this teacher of the law uh, affirms it. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no one but him. Because that is such a huge detail that Jesus says here. Jesus is saying God is one, that God is is complete. He's saying to him, there is no part in God like he's, you know, this one moment and, and this the next because then he would be two different things. He's saying God is one. He's, he's constant. You can't pit God against he, he, himself. There's no contradiction in God. There's no change in God because then he would have been one thing one moment and another thing the next. He's saying God is one. He's constant. Therefore, God is eternal. God is always the same. He is always complete. Therefore, he is always good, always loving, always just, always powerful, always here. All of that is wrapped up in this enormous statement, God is one. Therefore, the life that he requires is also one. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? It's it's an all life, a one life, complete. All heart, all soul, all mind, all strength, all of you is a fitting response to this all God, this one God. Don't forget it, Jesus says. Uh, during during uni, uh, to pay my bills and to to earn uh, an income, I am um, I got a job on a vineyard uh, as part of a crew uh, pruning vines. Uh, there was I don't know 30, 40 of us, huge crew, uh, working our way up and down the vines all winter, uh, making them all neat. Uh, we did it with secateurs. We each had a p- fancy pair of secateurs, but you know just hand secateurs pruning and and snipping away all day long. But our crew also had five pairs of electric secateurs. 
I didn't even know this was a thing, but you can buy electric secateurs and you wear a battery pack and it's got a cord and you pull the trigger and when you pull the trigger, the secateurs close and nothing stops them. <laughs> Legitimately, nothing stops them. Uh, they were powerful. Now, some people got them because, you know, they had arthritis or injuries or something, but otherwise, for the other pairs, it was first come, best served. And so, like, you wanted to get there early to get the electric secateurs. But when you wore them, when you used them, you had to wear chain mesh gloves. You know, as a reminder, these things are powerful. If you put your finger in there, you lose that finger. You won't even notice it. Uh, these, these secateurs, you know the, the wire that vines hang on? You know, like thick metal wire? They cut through that without blinking. You know, they cut through branches, you know, thicker than my thumb, without even pausing. So you wore that protection as a reminder. These things are dangerous. <laughs> Don't muck around with them. But you know what happens when you use something that's dangerous too often? <laughs> what happens? You start to muck around with them. Like, yeah, you trim things. You, you halve that grape that's left on the vine just because you can and it's a bit fun to practice, you know, your, your nifty secateuring. You try and cut the biggest branch that you possibly can. You, you start getting a bit silly. And then you cut a wire and it pings away <laughs> and you're reminded, okay, these are dangerous. <laughs> Be careful. But that's how we work, isn't it? I mean, if you've ever worked with dangerous or big machinery, that, that's what we do. You know, we get something dangerous, we, we're very, you know, scared and respectful of it at the start, but the more and more we use it, the more and more we interact with it, the more and more we just forget how seriously we need to take these things. We, we start to treat them really blasé, we're really flippant. And we forget the respect they require. And so it is with these religious leaders that Jesus is encountering here. They have forgotten just how big and great and powerful God was and how seriously he is to be taken. And Jesus reminds them again and again and again, God is big, God is deep, God is powerful, God is one. He is eternal and constant. Don't forget it. Don't forget who he is and what it means, therefore, to live for him and to live with him. You know, the, the last guy, the last religious leader, he kind of gets it, doesn't he? he? He responds to Jesus. You know, that, that complete following of God is far more important than anything else, more than sacrifices, more than offerings. He understands you can't pay lip service to this God. He's too great for that. He's too big for that. God is one. God is all, therefore he asks for all. He is not a God of the leftovers. That's not how he works. You know, sometimes if I get home late, the, the family's had dinner and, and I get to pick over what, what remains on the plate. It's fine, you know. But you wouldn't want to do it often, would you? Because, you know, it feels second best. It feels second rate. Well, how do you think God feels when we treat him the same? In light of who Jesus says he is, when, when we do our own thing and then give God the leftovers... See, it doesn't fit, does it? The, the two things don't come together. Remember, God is bigger. We bear his image, therefore we're his. He's the God of life. He's the God who is one, unchanging, eternal, constant, good. If we are going to claim to be his followers, then that's the sort of following we need. That's the sort of life that he asks for. Not the path of least resistance. Not the leftovers but all life for the all God. 
And yet, did you notice what Jesus said to that last religious leader? You know, he asked the right question. Uh, He affirmed the right answer that Jesus gave. And what did Jesus say to him? It's there in verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. That's good, but also a bit bad, isn't it? I mean, it's good to be close to the kingdom of God, but it's bad not to be in. You know, close, close but no cigar. Like, he's near, but he's not there. So how then? How? How do you go from close to in? How do you actually get into God's kingdom of life and eternity and power? That's the question that that Jesus is forcing, that he's asking in the second half of this passage. And Jesus answers for us. I mean, firstly, he says, not like the teachers of the law. You know, he gives that description in verse 38 to 40. Uh, They go around, their their fancy robes, their fancy greetings, they get the best seats in the synagogue, they uh, do the flashiest prayers. You know, these guys look the part. These guys look like they're in, but what does Jesus say? No. They are rotten to the core. Their righteousness is outward and their selfishness is deep and they are not in. But there is a way in. Jesus says it there in verse 35 to 37. Let me read it. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked... Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The crowd listened to him with delight. What's Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is saying, how, How do you get into the kingdom? Jesus is saying, Through the king. The way into the kingdom is through the king. But who is that king? Well, the people of the day expected someone like David. You know, David was the greatest king of Israel. He essentially created the nation. He built the nation. And God had promised to David that one day one of his descendants would be a great king, would also be a great king, who would restore God's kingdom and rule God's kingdom. But there's a catch, as Jesus points out. There's a complication here. Because in this psalm, this song that David wrote, David calls that king to come. His son, his descendant, he calls him Lord. So how does that work? How is this king who is to come from David, his descendant, his son, how is he bigger than David? I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense. Sons sons uh, aren't bigger than their ancestors and who could be bigger than David who was the greatest king of all but that's exactly Jesus point Jesus wants to pose that question because he's making that point there is a king coming but it is not just any king in fact it's not even a king who's the same as David what's coming is bigger what's coming is better not just a king Jesus is saying the king is coming Not an earthly, temporary king, but a heavenly, eternal king. Something far bigger than the people were looking for. 
God is doing something far better. And that far better king is the key to the far better kingdom that God is establishing. That far better king is the far better key to the kingdom that God is establishing. Uh, It's end of year, obviously. Uh, Some of you have finished school. Some of you have finished college. Uh, You're looking at your career, or you have been looking at your your career. Uh, Some of you will be planning future studies, which means you need to choose a uni. Um, You need to think about which uni you would go to. I mean, it's not, you don't just have to go to UTAS. It's not just a default thing. But which uni do you choose? I mean, they'll they'll market themselves to you very uh, well because they want your money, let's be honest. But I remember when I was uh, graduating and when looking at unis, uh, there was one at the time which had a great slogan. I still remember it. The slogan was, an education that opens doors. An education that opens doors. I, I, I think that's a brilliant, a brilliant slogan. Because see what it's implying. It's not just saying education opens doors, as in you know, any degree will get you to places. But it's saying this education, our education, will get you places, will open doors for you. If we teach you, that will be good for you. Not necessarily because, you know, they were the top-ranked uni, not necessarily because they made the very best students. What they're saying is, our name on your resume matters. Our name on your resume opens doors for you. All those places, all those desirable jobs and and places you want to be, we can get you there. And no one else can. Only our name. And that's what's going on in this passage here. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying only the king, only knowing the king, only having his name can get you places, can open the door into God's kingdom. That is the only way. You you can get as close as you like. You might be the closest person in history to that kingdom, but you can never cross that line from being outside, from being close to being in, unless you have the king. Unless you are with the king. Only he can get you in. Only by knowing him, only by having his name, is entry into his kingdom made possible. How do we know that for sure? Well, Mark shows us just a couple of chapters later. Mark 15. Jesus is on the cross. He's cried out with his last cry. He's breathed his last breath. And what happens? Mark 15, verse 38. In that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, that curtain hung between God and man between God's presence and everyone else you and I that curtain was thick it was heavy it was impassable anyone who crossed that curtain died but what happens Jesus dies and it tears it tears in two no barrier anymore Nothing preventing God meeting with man. Nothing between us. Nothing stopping us from going to that place where he is. What's that saying to us? It's saying the way is open now. The way is open because the king has died. And entry is possible. 
You see, that curtain, that barrier, it's, it spoke to us. It was a clear message to us of our sinfulness, of our rebellion against God. In essence, it was us who put that curtain there. And it kept us out for our safety so we wouldn't die, but it kept us out of God's kingdom. It kept us away from God. But the king's death, Jesus' death, forgives that sin, tears that barrier away, and it's gone. And now we can be not just close, but in. In his kingdom. In relationship with him. In the life of him. Simply by trusting him. And knowing him. And loving the king. His name gets us places. It gets us through the door. And for those who are in, the life that we're called to, the life that couldn't earn us entry, is now ours to live. We live that life not to enter the kingdom, we live that life because we have entered that kingdom. Because that is the life of a citizen of that kingdom. That old life that Jesus described is now our calling. The life that we are invited to live. Knowing God. Loving God. Living all-hearted for Him. What does that look like? Well, it looks like the widow that Jesus uses as an example. Look at her story in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So we, we often hear, you know, all heart, all mind, all strength, all soul. We think, well, that requires huge effort, you know, dramatic things that we have to do for God. We think, you know, I, I have to raise myself up, summon myself to that. But this is what Jesus says. Jesus says it's not measured in amount, but in cost. It is measured in sacrifice. Here's what one commentator wrote. The measure of true sacrifice is not what we give, but what we keep. The measure of true sacrifice is not what we give, but what we keep. See, in Jesus' day, lots of people were, were giving lots and lots of money, putting huge sums in, but that's no sacrifice, is it? Because they know they've got heaps more money at home. There's no real sacrifice, no real cost there. But instead, it was this widow who only put in a few cents. You know, a pittance. That was a sacrifice because that was all she had to live on. That is all-hearted living, isn't it? Not measured in the amount, but measured in the cost, measured in the sacrifice. See, let's be honest. I mean, for lots of us, money, I mean, even, even big sums of money, that's not really a sacrifice to give that up. We've got more to live on. We've got the means to earn more. For some of us, time isn't a real sacrifice because, let's be honest, we've got plenty of time to spare. 
we could go on to other things. But the question of all followers, the question of all God's people that's being asked here is not what can you give, but what, where, how can you sacrifice? I mean, it's true, isn't it? There's, there's things that we're happy to give. There's times when we say, you know, I'll just give some money because I haven't got the time. <laughs> There's things that we're happy to give because it doesn't really hurt us. It doesn't really cost us. And there's things that we're really reluctant to give because it will cut into our plans. You know, it might jeopardize our dreams or our hopes for next year or for whenever. There's things that we're reluctant to give just because it's uncomfortable. We don't want to go there. The question we need to ask ourselves is what what might we need to sacrifice? What does all life, all strength, all heart, all hope, all energy look like for you? See, the path of least resistance, it doesn't work with Jesus. It's an easy path, but ultimately it leads away. You might come close, but you will never come in on that path. The path of most resistance does work. It's hard, it's painful, it's costly, but it leads to him. And not just close, but in. It's a path of trusting him and receiving him and receiving in him his kingdom as well. Powerful, good, constant, eternal life. Walk that hard path, abandon the easy, and have him and everything that comes with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the one God, the God who is one. For you are almighty, you are all-powerful. You are constant and unchanging. You are eternal. You are perfect in holiness, perfect in justice, perfect in goodness and in love and in kindness. Father, when we think of you and of who you are, it's clear to us that the path of least resistance is not your path. You are too great. You are too big for simply our leftovers. Father, we're so thankful that despite who you are, despite who we are, we can still know you because in our King, Jesus, entry to your kingdom, the ability to come close to you is ours. We thank you for his death that has made that possible for us. And we ask that you would help us to live a life fitting of him, an all heart, all soul, all mind, all strength life. Father, help us to pay the cost for that where you call us to. May we be willing to sacrifice for you as you have sacrificed for us. We pray this in Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen.